This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke. Luke 7. We're in a series this summer entitled Basics. And there are a couple of reasons why it's good to do a series like this. Um, In a couple of different places in Paul's writings, one place in Peter's writings, they address the churches and say, basically, it's it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things. It's no trouble at all. In fact, it's a good thing for me to remind you about these things. And they go on to talk about the gospel, the implications of the gospel. So in God's mind, we need it multiple times. In fact, if you've ever read straight through the Bible, one of the things you'll notice about it is it repeats itself. It doesn't repeat itself in exactly the same way. It does it with different textures and hues and nuances, but it does repeat itself. It's as if God is saying to us, y'all are thick-headed. Y'all are thick-headed. It's going to take multiple times for me to pound this through and into you. So that's one of the reasons why it's good to do a series like this, Basics. Uh, The other reason we're doing this is that throughout the course of the summer, we're going to talk about a couple of topics that are what I would say forgotten basics. In other words, they're basics. I'm not sure we at Alliance Bible Church or even American evangelicalism in, in, in general are good at grabbing hold of and practicing. So there's some fundamentals, I think, that we're missing. And so that's another reason we're going to be doing this, this series together. Now, uh, you live today in a climate of redefinition. Okay? Words are being redefined given new meaning all around you. There's lots of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into that right now. But it's the air we breathe, okay, right now. Redefinition, redefine the words, redefine the words. And that has a way of seeping into how you and I as Christians, as Jesus followers, go about life. We have a tendency to to, uh, take on the ambient values of the culture. Redefinition is one of those. So this topic today, the question is, what is a Christian, is, is, no, um, is no outlier. That word Christian has been defined numerous ways, and it's continuing to be defined in numerous ways. If we were to go do an interview on the street with people in Cedarburg, Mequon, Graftonport, Washington, we'd probably hear as many definitions of that word as people we interviewed. So we need to make sure that we're clear on this. And one of the things, the way in which we do all of this is we go back to the text. The Bible is the last word on how words are defined. The scriptures are the last word on how we understand the definitions to things. So we're always going to go back to that. We're going to do that today as we look at this question, what is a Christian? And we're going to do that from Luke 7. Now listen, Jesus taught that the world is divided into two groups of people who experience radically different fates, both in this life 
and the next. Let me read it to you. Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Now there's a lot at stake in knowing whether you are a genuine Christian. Now there are several ways or means the Bible employs to explain the nature of a Christian. Today we're going to look at two individuals within Luke 7, two distinct stories that Luke interweaves together to help clarify the answer to this question, what is a Christian? One of the most important things to notice about these two individuals is that Jesus stands in amazement of them. His reaction to them is meaningful. He stands in amazement of them. He says their faith is greater than anything he's ever seen before. He applauds them. He praises them. What did they do to garner such a response from Jesus? Well, they had an outlook on themselves. They had an outlook on Jesus that Jesus finds praiseworthy. And it's an outlook, it's a heart posture that characterizes a true Christian. So there are three statements, three attitudes, three postures we need to be true of us if we're going to have the assurance that we are genuine Christians. Here are the three, and we're going to walk through them. There's something wrong with me. I can't fix this, but I know who can. And I'm not the same. Three heart postures that need to be true of us if we're going to have the assurance that we're genuine Christians. What is a Christian? There's something wrong with me. I can't fix this, but I know who can. And I'm not the same. Here we go. First, there's something wrong with me. Luke chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now, this Roman soldier's got a problem. His servant is dying. His servant is in need of healing. Interestingly enough, in the original language, healing and saving, same word. To heal, to save, same word. Notice what the religious leaders of the day say. Jesus, this man, this soldier, deserves to have you heal his servant. He deserves it. He's built our church. He gave generously to our ministry. He's been a faithful attendee. He's been a moral and upright individual. He deserves to have you do this for him. 
Now, contrast that with the soldier's own words about himself. He's got a very different take on it, doesn't he? He says to Jesus, essentially, I don't deserve a thing from you. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your healing. I don't deserve your salvation. I don't even consider myself worthy enough to be in your presence. You talk about two diametrically opposed viewpoints. Which one is right? Well, in just a few verses, Jesus is going to give the soldier a glowing commendation. A glowing commendation based on what he has said about himself. The heart posture that says there's something wrong with me. The heart posture that says there's something wrong with me is a Christian posture. The perspective that says I deserve because I've done this or that is religious, but it's not gospel. It may be religious, but it's not Christian. So many people today do not understand the vast expanse that exists between religion and the gospel. Between religion and true Christianity. Every other religion out there, every other worldview out there, every other philosophy out there says, in a sense, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I perform, therefore I'm approved. This is what the religious leaders are saying, aren't they? Look at what this man's done. He built our synagogue. He's been faithful to our nation. He deserves to have you do this for him. He has performed. Give him his due. This is religion. I obey, therefore I'm healed. I perform, therefore I'm saved. The gospel says, Christianity says... I am more sinful, more flawed, more messed up than I can possibly imagine. Yet through Christ and Christ alone, I'm approved and accepted. And therefore I obey. That's the soldier's perspective. It's a gospel perspective. It's a perspective in the end that Jesus applauds. The, the soldier has no trouble acknowledging there's something wrong with me. He's well aware of the fact that he's more sinful, more flawed, more messed up than he can possibly imagine. So being a Christian, genuine Christian, begins with you looking yourself in the mirror and saying and believing, I am more sinful, more flawed, more messed up than I can possibly imagine. That is not a popular sentiment in society today that believes in the basic goodness of people. It's not a popular sentiment in a current climate of expressive individualism, which basically says your feelings and desires are good and ought to be satisfied. What do you believe about this? The question's too important to skirt over it. What do you believe about this? Have you ever told yourself, I am more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine? The soldier did. And Jesus said of him, I have never seen someone have this kind of faith. Being a Christian starts here. There's something wrong with me. If you don't start there, 
If you can't start there, you'll never, ever experientially understand the reason for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you don't start there, your heart will never, ever be electrified by what Jesus has done and why he did it. Carl Adolf Eichmann, I think his story was captured in a movie that was released the past few years. He was a Nazi lieutenant colonel, and uh, he was a very uh, gifted individual, if I can put it that way. Uh, is incredibly talented and very loyal to the Nazi ideal. He was put in charge of facilitating and managing the logistics for the mass deportation of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps in Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe. Eichmann, essentially Eichmann was the brains behind the Holocaust. After the war, he was captured by Israeli agents in Argentina, and he was tried in Israeli court on 15 criminal charges, including crimes against humanity and war crimes. He was convicted and hanged in 1962. Yehiel Denur was a Holocaust survivor, and he spent two years in Auschwitz. He was a witness at Eichmann's trial. During an interview on 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace uh, was interviewing Yehiel Denur, and he showed Denur a film clip. And the clip was of Denur walking into the courtroom for the first time at Eichmann's trial. Denur entered the room, he looked briefly at Eichmann, and then began to weep uncontrollably and fainted. He passed out. It's a very dramatic scene. People were panicked, judges pounding the gavel, trying to bring everything to order. The room was filled with emotional intensity. When the clip was over, Wallace asked Denure about that scene. He asked him, what did you feel at that moment? What overwhelmed you? Was it hatred for this man who had killed so many of your family members and friends? Or fear just being in the presence of such an evil and wicked person? What did you feel? Denur responded and said, no, none of the above. When I walked in and I saw him, I suddenly realized he was no demon or Superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me. And suddenly I became terrified about myself because I saw I was capable of the exact same things. Do you believe you are too? Do you believe you are capable of doing the things Eichmann did? The Bible tells us we are. We are capable of doing the things Eichmann did. It's one of the fundamental tenets of the Bible's teaching. Ordinary people are capable of extraordinary atrocities. Do you believe you are too?
You believe there's something wrong with me, deeply, profoundly wrong with me. This is where true Christianity starts. But it doesn't stay there. It progresses. Let's continue in the story. The Roman soldier said, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What's the soldier saying? He's saying, I I know I don't deserve this, Jesus, but all you have to do is say the word. That's all you have to do. Just say it. Just say it. So not only does a soldier believe, look inside himself and say, there's something wrong with me. He also says, I can't fix this, but I know you can, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has the authority, the ability, the resources to save. Jesus is the only one who has any authority to save. See, I think many times we think we've put our trust in Jesus, but that trust in Jesus is actually trust in ourselves with Jesus there to assist us when we need him. I have faith in God. I go to church. I pray. I read the Bible. I try to do unto others what what I'd want them to do to me. When all is said and done and life on earth is over, we think that as long as the good outweighs the bad, we'll be good to go. That doesn't convey the sentiment of, I can't fix this, but I know who can. One of the things that just is mind-boggling to me is this idea that I develop a moral and spiritual resume through the way I live life. And I'm going to hand that to God one day, and he's going to approve of me and allow me to enter his kingdom. If that's the way it works, what's the point of the cross? What's the point of Jesus? The entire plot line of the scriptures is one of dependency on God for salvation. And our complete inability to make our own way. You got that? The entire plot line of the scriptures is one of absolute dependency on God for salvation, our complete inability to make our own way. Let me give you three stories from the Old Testament. We could work through it book by book by book. We haven't got all day. After Adam and Eve sinned, (laughs) that should have been the end of the story. Literally, the words, the end, should have come across the movie screen. After they ate the fruit, there was no mystery as to how the story would go at that point, right? God had made it abundantly clear. If you don't obey me about the tree, you will die. Okay? The end. That's it. If the story is going to continue after they ate, God and God alone has to do something. What are Adam and Eve going to do? Nothing. God does do something. Huh? He does do something. What does he do? (laughs) He speaks. Oh, man. If I was Adam and Eve, would I have been on the edge of my seat at that point? We know we screwed up. We know where this ends. 
Is God going to do anything? Say something. Tell us this isn't the end. God speaks. Yeah, he pronounces judgment. He pronounces curses. But also hope. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. An allusion to Jesus crushing the head of Satan while Jesus is bruised. An allusion to a reference to the cross and the resurrection. That was close. Right? Now that's only possible because God said, this is how the story is going to go. It's only possible because God says, this is how the story is going to go. Why is there future hope after Adam and Eve disobeyed? (laughs) Because God, the author, chose to write the story that way. You got that? The only reason the end doesn't show up on the last slide of the show is because God said, no, I'm going to write this differently. I'm going to write it differently. How about uh, another one? When Israel had on one side the Red Sea and on the other the fast approaching Egyptian military, how were they going to self-save themselves? (laughs) They weren't. This is another place in the Bible's plotline where we should have read the end. But God tells Moses, raise your staff in your hand over the waters and they'll part for you. Now, to be very clear, there is no cause and effect between the staff and the Red Sea parting. The cause and effect, you want to know the cause and effect? That's God and the Red Sea parting. It's only possible because God said, this is how the story is going to go. This is the way I want to write it. Don't tell me God is not the author of the human story. Don't go there. Why is there future hope for Israel at this point? Because God, the author, chose to write the story that way. Or consider the three great matriarchs of the Old Testament, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. The wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God told Abraham he's going to be the great, 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 I'm not sure how many there are in there. Grandfather of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. Through his line, all nations will be blessed. But there was a problem. Sarah, his wife, was barren, infertile. You can't have descendants if you don't have children. No children, no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation. So what does God do? He opens Sarah's womb and enables her to conceive And that story repeats itself again with Rebecca and Rachel. None of the three great matriarchs of the Old Testament were able to have children until God opens their wombs and enables them to conceive. Who opens the womb? God does. God does. God does. This is only possible because God said, this is how I want the story to go. There's hope for their families and there's hope for the rest of us because God, the author, chose to write the story that way. We could go on and on with story after story. A genuine Christian is on their knees in a posture of absolute dependency, begging, pleading with God, God, write my story that way. Save me. 
The heart posture of a genuine Christian is, I can't fix this, but I know who can and I'm going to run to him. See, one of the primary purposes of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels is to serve as analogs of redemption. There are many salvation stories. They depict people desperate for healing, coming to Jesus, sometimes exerting tremendous effort just to get in front of him. They're analogical pictures of people becoming Christians. I can't fix this. I'm deaf. I'm blind. I'm lame. I'm dead. (laughs) But I know who can. I can't fix my sinful condition. I can't fix the problems it creates. I can't erase the gap my sin creates between me and God. But I know who can't. It's Jesus. It's his perfect life of righteousness lived for me. It's his death died for me that saves. I can't fix this, but I know who can. Last, third, I'm not the same. I'm not the same. There's something wrong with me. I can't fix this, but I know who can. And I'm not the same. Skip down to verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Skip down to verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, who is this woman? Literally, it says, a sinful woman of the city. A sinful woman of the city. A woman of the city was a term that meant prostitute. She was a professional prostitute. She's a woman of the streets. She does something astounding, and it provides more color and nuance to what it means to be a Christian. She takes off an alabaster flask or jar. A number of archaeological digs that have turned up these little things. It was a Globular with a bulb and a long skinny neck. And at the top, there was a very, very, very tiny opening. When it was created, inside it was per- perfume. And it was constructed in such a way that the aroma could get out, but there was no way for the perfume to spill out. And this was tied around the woman's neck. Why? Well... 
In those days, there was no air conditioning. And the summertime temperatures would get up to about where they are today. Even hotter. Y'all know what happens. When the human body is in 95 degree heat with no access to cooling, you sweat, you stink. Body odor is bad for business when you're a prostitute. So here you have this woman whose livelihood, entire livelihood, involves being attractive to men, which includes having a pleasant scent. So if you're going to be a prostitute in the first century, you had to have perfume. Now, you and I have a vast array of stores we can go to that sell this stuff at fairly inexpensive prices. Perfume in that day was rare and costly. Some historians believe this perfume could have cost as much as a year's worth of wages. An entire year's worth of wages. Can you imagine spending an entire year's worth of wages on this? But for a prostitute, this is the tool of the trade. It's absolutely necessary and critical to what she's doing. What does she do with the perfume? She's pouring it over Jesus' feet. This is what has led some Bible scholars and archaeologists to talk to one another, try to figure out how in the world this was happening. The only way to pour it was to break the flask. What has she done? This is the thing she trusted in. This is the foundation of her life. And it's now gone. She's made a statement. I'm not the same. I'm a new person. I'm not going back to my old life. I've burned the bridge. My old life is over. I've got a new life now. A Christian is not the same. A Christian's a new person. There's a complete reordering of passions and pursuits and interests and identity. So my question to you is this. What's your flask? Have you broken it yet? The great Christian thinker and writer Augustine records, um, I think it's in Confessions, I'm not sure it's in Confessions, but um, lived back in the 400s, long time ago. Before he became a Christian, he, was, he lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. And uh, after he had become a Christian, he was out traveling and doing ministry. And 
Uh, he came into a, a town where he had spent some time in his pre-Christ years. There was a woman there with whom he had had a relationship. And um, she saw him. She came up running to him. She says, Augustine, Augustine. And he looked at her very briefly and then just kept walking, barely acknowledging her existence. And she was confused by that. She said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine said, oh, I know. I know. But it is not I. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Let's bow our heads. Let's take some time to soak in this a little bit. I wonder if you've ever told God, God, there's something wrong with me. Deeply, profoundly wrong with me. This is what it is to acknowledge I'm a sinner. Have you done that? If you've not done that, do it now. Have you ever admitted to God, God, I'm so messed up, I can't fix what's wrong with me. But I know you can. Have you ever assumed the the heart posture of dependent pleading with God to save you? The story of your life and mine should have read long ago, the end. But by God's mercy and grace, he's still giving you each breath you breathe. Use the next one to cry out to God, save me. Does your life bear the same marks of change as the prostitute turned Jesus follower? Are you able to say with Augustine, oh, I know, but it is not I.
Have you noticed a reordering of passions and pursuits, interests, motivations, and identity? Father, we thank you for your great mercy which did not end the story when it could have. That you've prolonged it, you've carried it on and more than that, you've made it a story that for your people will be beautiful. And you've done it all through your son, Jesus. As we partake of this supper, drive home to us how good the gospel tastes. We do it to make much of him. In his name, amen.